Yeah, awesome. So welcome, everybody, and uh, glad you could be here with us. As always, I, I think it's weird to be one of the main speakers in this conference because we host this conference, and usually if you host, you like to invite the other guys in and take the week off, you know what I mean? Um, but Troy's in charge now, so... <laughs> Anyway, um, truly excited to have this time together. I'm very thankful for each and every one of you that have come, certainly that you guys who have traveled a long way. I know that we've got some other brothers, uh, maybe their families, I'm not sure, that are, that are still en route. Uh, I know some of the southern guys are still en route. What's the matter, man? I can hear me. Sorry. Well, we, we, was it pointed the wrong direction? We can't hear you very well. Sorry. I, it was coming through there. Apparently not. Was it sticking out, kind of? Because that bugs me. When I'm in the audience and the guy's out here and the mic's out this way, and everybody's thinking, I'm not listening to what you're saying, that microphone's sticking out sideways. All right, let me just pray. We'll just get our mind back together, and, and we'll jump into, into what we have. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for what a gift, what a gift he is, and to dwell inside of us and to teach us all truth and to lead us and to guide us into all truth that... He convicted us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and gently led us to our Savior and uh, inspired your holy word and helps us to see wondrous things out of it. And I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would be honored. I pray that you would show yourself off. And I pray that you just help me to get out of your way. Um, I pray that we'd all be edified and you'd be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, here we are, and we're back into this routine of studying systematically various doctrines of the Scriptures at this conference, and, and this particular subject for this year, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has so many aspects, obviously, of study that, it can, that can be covered concerning it. We could talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit, the very person of the Holy Spirit. We could talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Troy talked about the fruit of the Holy Spirit yesterday morning. We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the sins against the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just endless directions and things that can be covered in a thorough research of this subject, and, and certainly there'll be things that we don't ultimately get to, but hopefully enough is studied and said to be an encouragement and, and to get you well down the road, uh, one of the things of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is a big subject is, is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and whether or not we ultimately touch on all of those other things that I mentioned or others that I didn't mention, um, a lot of that stuff is fairly simple and straightforward. A lot of that stuff is already involved in a lot of your church's discipleship material, and a lot of you already know that sort of thing. I sort of believe that our job in these morning sessions is to cover areas that maybe are not quite as clear, maybe some areas that aren't always taught properly very often. And at the end of the day, once you understand that obviously the Holy Spirit is God Himself, the third person of the Godhead, I mean, it's a, it's a tall task to say we're going to study and exhaust the subject of God Himself in three days right? Um, let me just remind us of a couple of things before we get rolling as far as an intro goes, and you should have your notes in front of you, but 
Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 say this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, you know, as we get into some of these topics, I, I think that you'll find that some of the areas of study in this subject are what Peter calls, when he refers to Paul's writings, as hard to be understood. And yet other things are very clearly revealed, and, and hopefully we can strike a good balance clarifying what is biblically clear and hopefully doing that with doing no violation to the Scriptures in areas that may seem to be less clear. And I'm saying all that as introduction because I'm going to jump right into some areas that I think are not all super clear. Before we get to that, let me just give you, especially for those of you who are newer to First Baptist Church and newer to coming to these conferences, uh, certainly the Certainty Conference, um, one reason that we began having these conferences was to establish some doctrinal foundations for the Living Faith Fellowship and to develop doctrinal position statements for things that we believe, things that would distinguish and differentiate us from many other groups out there. I mean, why bother creating a fellowship of churches if you're basically the same as a whole bunch of existing other fellowships of churches or whatever the situation is. And so in the course of setting out to do that, we want to clearly define what, what it is we do believe, right? And teach certainly on key doctrinal issues, certainly on issues that other people may find controversial. But yet at the same time in doing such a thing, I think it's almost impossible to do that without also stating clearly what we don't believe and what we don't teach, and, and what are the heresies that we would stand against. I mean, for years before we ever began this thing called the Certainty Conference in 2015, First Baptist Church always had an annual Bible conference in the springtime, typically, of the year, and eventually we decided to call it Certainty and, and to do this together, and, and I think I have in your notes the history of the Certainty Conference topics that we've covered every year coming up until now, and we chose each of those topics on purpose. And without getting into them, let me just mention, so the very first one was on the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, but, but really what we were teaching is why we're not Calvinists, right? I mean, that was, that was really what it was all about. While teaching the truth of salvation, which is a very simple understanding, we really dove into the tulip and, and why all that is heresy. Uh, the next year, we talked about the doctrine of dispensationalism, but really what we wanted to do was point out why we're not covenant theologians. Uh, the year after that, it just flowed into talking about eschatology and prophecy and end times. And what we really wanted to point out is why we're not amillennials and, and why we believe there is a literal second coming and there's a timeline to all of those things. Then we jumped into the doctrine of the Bible and, and well, it was a King James Bible conference. That's, that's what it was. And so if we want to say what were we standing against, I would say we're standing against confusion. I would say we're standing against people who would be not King James only, but original manuscript only, or even Texas Receptus only, and maybe that's who you are, I don't know. But the next year after that, we talked about the doctrine of the church, and we talked about the importance of local churches. Well, what that became is a statement why we don't necessarily want to support parachurch ministries, independent ministries that are, that are disconnected from God's ordained structure of the local church. And then last year was a weird year, and so we kind of took a year off, and that was my call. Um, then we just talked about COVID and, and it was kind of a special time and we had the pastors only kind of locked in here in the morning because we wanted them to have 
those of you who are here, to have some freedom to just speak freely about the frustrations and challenges it is to try and lead churches through COVID. So we took a break from the doctrinal emphasis, and now here we are back again talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And when you talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I, I say that to say, because I'm going to jump into 1 Corinthians 12 here in a minute, that we are clearly not charismatics. Uh, we clearly are not going to believe what they teach about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and that is going to be my subject for my sessions in the mornings. And the, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I, I'm going to be covering 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 as the basis. Um, so after this week, we should have some pretty clear understanding about who we are. And I, each obviously decides for themselves. And, and, and what we believe, at least as a fellowship of churches. And, and so I would say that for those of you who are more positive thinkers than I am, you know, I believe in the power of negative thinking, but if you're not like me, good for you. I see the, the things that we don't believe or stand against as actually beneficial because they serve as filters for us to make sure we don't fall into the tendency of, of this kind of heresy. It's protection against confusion. And so I have no problem standing up and saying on the record that we are not covenant theologians. We're not amillennial Calvinist kingdom builders. We're not people who will use any Bible and allow them to say and teach whatever we want them to say and teach. I, I'm not afraid to stand up and say that we're not supporters of independent ministries void of any authority or accountability of God, to God's only given structure for ministry in the Great Commission, and that's the local church. I, I don't mind saying that I'm not sympathetic to the charismatic movement tolerating activity in the name of Jesus Christ that's actually blasphemy. We're going to learn about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but we're also going to learn why we're not charismatics. And when you think of the charismatics, you know, the Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, Foursquare and those guys, for me anyway, the first thing that I think of is their misuse of spiritual gifts. Proverbs 25, 14 says, Whoso boasts himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. And the charismatics boast that they possess gifts that they don't actually possess. And as such, they are like rain clouds that never rain. They make promises, but they don't ever deliver, right? And they are, at the end of the day, as we'll see, biblically defined liars. So I'm taking my three sessions, and this is what I'm going to be all about. Today is going to be primarily focused on chapter number 12. In chapter number 12, I'm calling this lesson the categorization of the gifts. And, and while a lot of this is going to be review for you, I, I hope that by the time, hang with me, by the time we get to the end, maybe there, there will be some structure that I intend to lay out that will be helpful to you. And, and again, you can kind of take that as you like. Again, as we'll see, some of these things are clearly defined and some of these things are less clearly defined if we're just going to be fair. The first point of study that I want us to look at today, I'm calling the desire for greatness. The desire for greatness. And, you know, as much as I've already launched out on a negative footing from the very beginning, I, I do think that it's very, very important that we establish what I consider to be the singular most important issue of study when you study this issue, and that is that the real problem ultimately with the charismatics, as with any cult or false religious system, is that they have no final authority. That's the ultimate issue with anybody in any group that has false teaching and, and any false doctrine that exists anywhere. They don't have a final authority. They wish that they did, but since they have no suitable respect 
for the written words of God. Well, then, I think the conclusion is fairly clear. How can you say such a thing? How dare you? Well, I know it's true. How do you say that? Well, I know it's true because they constantly stand up and keep adding to the content of Scripture. Every time they stand up and preach and say, God told me something, and that thing that God told them doesn't square with the revelation of Scripture. They're effectively adding to the canon. And that's in direct contradiction to what God already said in the Bible. All this advanced revelation, whether they want to call it that or not, that's sin. So I think I have in your notes, all cults believe that God continues to speak new revelation to man. That's a, that's a big red flare. You've got to keep your eyes out for that. So it doesn't matter who they are, the Mormons, the JWs, the Catholics, the Charismatics. When the Bible clearly states, like in Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Like it states in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them to put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. I think I mentioned that earlier, didn't I? Revelation twenty two eighteen. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. So the real problem with that adding to the scripture, besides the fact that it's forbidden, it should be enough, right? Is that all of this supposed new revelation that God speaks through these anointed men and God help us women preachers of God is entirely subjective. I mean, how do you know that what you think you heard is really right? How do you know you remembered it right? I mean, that's why the Holy Spirit said through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, describing his experience with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration back in Matthew 17, being eyewitnesses of his majesty. When the voice of the Father comes down, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter literally was in a situation where he actually did hear the audible voice of God, like people today want to claim that they do. And he says in verse 18, this voice which came from heaven, we heard it when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. You guys know this already. The word of prophecy is more sure than the audible voice of God. And what exactly is that defined in the scripture? The word of prophecy down to verse 20 is that no, oh yeah, prophecy of the scripture. You don't have to wonder about what that word, they'll say, well, that's what we're giving you. We're giving you a word of prophecy. No, it's the prophecy of the scripture. And by the way, it's of no private interpretation. Amen. That's the way it's supposed to be set up. But their whole MO, the way that they approach the, the, the understanding of who God is, is going to be based on places like Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, great. Amen. Jesus Christ is the same. That doesn't mean everything he does is the same throughout history. I mean, that, isn't that the whole basis of dispensationalism? The fact that there are various times throughout history where God dealt with man in unique ways over time. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Does, does that mean that God never does anything differently at any time throughout her? That's private interpretation. Thinking that that extends to the way that God operates 
the same at all times throughout all of history. It's ludicrous. I mean, is Jesus Christ still in a physical body on the earth? I mean, is he still a baby? You know, what was that? What was that movie, the Ricky Bobby movie, you know? Okay, yeah, I mean, is he? No. Is Jesus still hanging on the cross like the Roman Catholics want to interpret him to be? That vile, demonic cult that only wants to portray the Lord in his most vulnerable, weak position in all of history? That's the way they want to portray him? Is he the same now? The Lord never changes, but what he does and what he tells us to do is, is it does change. For example, do we still sacrifice animals in a Jewish temple? No, of course not. It's ridiculous, and they know that. And so it's all just private interpretation because they know that there's been a radical change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they refuse to believe what the Bible simply says, and they don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth, and they make shipwreck of the ministry lives. And they want to stop the clock in the first century A.D., and this is where we're going to land here for the study today. They want to assume the ministry that was given to the apostles. You see, the apostles spoke for the Lord. And God gave the apostles new revelation, right? They gave us this God-breathed word that ultimately was written down, but they gave it to us verbally. And then somebody wrote it down for us. And with the possible exception of Luke, all the other New Testament authors, well, they're apostles. And anybody who pretends to be an apostle today is a liar. That's what Jesus said to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2, right? And he's commending them. And verse number 2, it says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. Good job. Good job, guys. You found these charlatans that are trying to imitate and make their ministry seem like they are apostles, and they are not apostles. And you rooted them out, and you called them out. Good job. You say, man, Jeff, this, you wake up rough this morning? I mean, <laughs> we came here to have a nice day. They got donuts and stuff. Well, why am I starting off with this? Well, I do think that it's the first core issue. I wanted to get it out on square one, but, but we're about to jump into 1 Corinthians 12. And when we do, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the list of every gift, and we'll, we'll see that as we go, but there's actually several lists. There's a couple of them in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll look at all the lists before we're done this morning. But I want to I prove to you this morning that some of those, that many of those in this li- among these lists were temporary that they were limited to the first century and they were limited to the ministry of the apostles. And that's why I want to talk about revelation and new revelation and special, unique things that happened among that time. The apostles, that's a unique group that does not currently exist today. You say, how do you know that? Well, it's very clear from the Word of God. The apostles are 12. There were 12 apostles. And upon the removal of Judas Iscariot, a devil, right, the 11 remaining in Acts chapter 1 had to find a replacement because there had to be 12. And so they cast the lots and they come up with Matthias. And after they choose Matthias, then the the story continues on to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 12, we find James, one of the apostles, dies. After James dies, who do they pick to replace him? Nobody, because the 12 are fixed. 
and they're fixed in eternity and they're going to sit on 12 thrones and they're going to guard 12 gates and they're going to reign over the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And there's only 12 and it's done. Tick tock, the game's locked. You say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? Well, he's lucky number 13. Paul's not the 12th one, and if you disagree, you're wrong. <laughs> he's one born out of due time. You go to 1 Corinthians 15, it's actually not in my notes, but you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and when he lists, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was seen of Peter, then of the 12, then of a bunch of others. Lastly, he was seen of me, clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, excluding himself from the 12. Paul's lucky number 13. He's the exception that proves the rule. Look, I know that the term apostle is used in a more broad sense, like a missionary, one that is sent. I get that. But in the context of a biblical office of an apostle, it was limited to the first century, and then it was done. It was absolutely done. So concerning the subject of spiritual gifts, let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see if we can come to some conclusions about what applies to us and what doesn't. And, and I'll just tell you up front, in my opinion, it's not that easy with all of these. It's not. And if it's easy for you, Troy should ask you to teach. <laughs> so number two in your notes, the definition of the gifts. Let's define some of these things. Let's look at what they are and see if we can give some definition and see if we can make sense of some of this stuff. So we'll start with a little bit of review and just give you some ideas of things to consider as we get into this, because in the study of the gifts of the Spirit, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think we need to include some very clear and simple truths. There's some things that are listed in the first several verses that, again, you're all well aware of. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. Most of you probably already know all this, or you could check it out real quickly. But the first thing I want to say is this, you can't earn a gift you can't pay for it, and oh yeah, you can't pray for it either. I don't care what they say about just believe enough and pray for it and God will give it to you. No, not a gift by definition of the word gift, right? A gift is a gift. It's gifted to you by the grace of God. That's what grace means, something gifted that you don't deserve, right? This is super deep, right? You want to get your pencils out for this. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning. God gives the gifts, right? And God gives you the gifts as it pleases him. That's verse 11. And spiritual gifts are for the benefit of others. They're not for your own personal benefit. Well, this just edifies me. Well, then it's not a spiritual gift by definition. That's verse number seven. And the purpose of the gifts is to manifest the supernatural power of God in your life for the explicit purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, to reach other people that need to be saved and then to grow up those people who are saved in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of different ways that this thing can play out. This is why there's so much confusion out there. Because in verses 4 and 5, when it talks about different administrations and operations of the giftings, there's just a lot of various ways which the working out of all of these gifts will look in the life of any particular individual believer. And with all of these combinations and, and moving parts, well, sometimes it's, it's hard to nail down exactly what's what. But this is my job. So here we are. Let's, let's get into it. Uh, let's look at the list of gifts. The list begins in verse number 8. Let me... Let me get there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
The list begins in verse number eight. And I'm just going to go down them, and uh, I'm going to offer to you some thoughts for each, ones of the, each one of these, and uh, we'll kind of we'll see where we land. So in chapter 12 and verse number eight, I mean, let's not waste any time. The Lord comes right out of the gate with arguably two of the most confusing that, that exist in, in the whole list. It talks about this thing called the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. What the heck are those? right? And it just depends on who you ask. I mean, you're going to get all kind of answers all across the board, and God help you if you read commentaries, because I'm just going to be everywhere. How do you define things? Well, the way we're going to define them is the way we're supposed to define them, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So let's do our little faithful word search on the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, and uh uh-oh, it doesn't appear anywhere else. So by definition, since it doesn't appear anywhere else, that means that I have the liberty to let it say whatever I want. Well, that's what they teach. I mean, people just make this stuff up as they go. I I said what I said earlier. Some of these are not that clear, and I would say these are clearly in the list of those that are not clear, right? There's no other biblical cross-reference. How can you possibly think you understand exactly what God meant when he didn't give us any more light than the fact that he mentioned them in a list one time? It's hard to conclusively define and discern between these two. So let me just tell you, what I think I can glean, and you take it for what what you think you can get from it. Generally speaking, we all know what knowledge is. Generally speaking, we all know what wisdom is. So knowledge, we're gaining more information. We're getting more information about God. Let's just say we're getting more information from God about life that a typical unsaved man can't get. God's given us his knowledge. And wisdom would be knowing how to apply that knowledge in particular life situations, right? That's knowledge and that's wisdom. But God didn't say that he has given to you wisdom or knowledge by the Spirit. He said he's given unto you the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge by the Spirit. And call me simple, but Since words are intended to be spoken, I think the word of wisdom and knowledge was likely a spoken word of new revelation. That's what I think it is. Listen, since God's inspiration, we covered this when we did the conference on the Bible, the the very word inspiration, the root of that, the spire part, that's spirit, right? The You know, the other Bibles want to say God breathed. Okay, whatever. But the inspiration is always spoken. It's always verbal. 2 Peter chapter 1, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They didn't write. I was listening to a a podcast the other day of some guys that they're like recovering fundies or something like that. It's kind of, somebody said it was a popular, so I listened to it and I went right to the one where they did on the KJV and Immediately, the guy, the so-called expert, and I won't waste your time with it but because it wasted my time listening, goes to 2 Peter chapter 1, and he's like, holy men of God, he says, the Bible says that they spoke, but we know that really what they did was right. Oh, really? You just know that, do you? Well, actually, words mean something, and there's something about speaking. So the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, at least to me, makes the most sense that it was a prophetic 
new word spoken of revelation from God given to the apostles in the early church before there were scriptures. Since these, it's interesting to me that these are the first two that appear in the list. There's another list that appears starting in verse number 28. You can glance at that. And, and I wonder sometimes if the first two in the list starting in verse 8 might co-relate with the first two in the list in verse 28, which are apostles and prophets. And that's just my supposition, but if that's true, then certainly they would have been active only during the first century before the written scripture was completed. Which means that they would be temporary gifts and not active today because the revelation is complete, we have the Bible. Now we're going to get to all the details of all of that working out in the next couple of days as well, so if I leave some things that you're thinking, yeah, talk more about that. We'll come back. We will. Uh, the third one on the list, faith. I'm just going to call it a supernatural ability to trust God when others seemingly can't. You ever notice that? You ever notice that some people in certain situations just seem to have a supernatural ability to trust the Lord when other Christian people around them are just panicking? Is that a spiritual gift? Well, there is a spiritual gift in the list that's called faith. Now, we all know that we all have faith, and you can break down faith into different ways, but one thing is certainly clear. We all have faith as believers in Jesus Christ, but we don't all have the same amount of faith. There's no doubt about that, because in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So clearly not everybody is going to get the same measure dealt to them as everybody else. And it's not in the context of somebody getting saved, and it's not in a Calvin, Calvinistic perversion of God gives faith, you know, the faith of Jesus to some people, and they get to go to heaven and the other ones don't. That's not the context to the Christians in Rome that he's writing. But even with that, faith is not specifically stated to be a spiritual gift anywhere else besides 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And although Romans 12 eventually gets to some spiritual gifts later in verse 3, it does say that God dealt to every man. Well, to deal is to give, right? You deal out the cards, you give them out to the people, right? He's dealt to every man a measure of faith. But that can't mean that only, with, only those who get the gift of faith have faith, because everybody can have faith. Anybody can exercise their free will and have faith, right? But somehow this is a supernatural gift and an ability to trust God for more things. And, and I'm going to make a comment about this a little bit later before we're done today, so I'm going to leave that there. Number four, healing. Healing is a supernatural ability to heal anyone, anytime, with 100% success. This is the differentiation because everybody in this room believes, I think, that God still heals people. Oh, yeah. Amen? I pray for it all the time. And I don't pray for it with a double mind. I, I beg God to heal the people I love and care for who are suffering and sick and all that kind of stuff, and, we, and God does do that on occasion. But to, but to think that 
anybody has the gift of healing, like the apostles in the early first century, where you could go around and just cast your gift on somebody and they are healed, whether they had enough faith to believe it or not. Well, these, these guys are lying. That, that's, they they, they want to be apostles. They want to be healers. And they hold their crusades in stadiums and they want you to write them checks. But they're lying. They're not getting, they're not getting healed. And listen, the spiritual gift of healing made a gifted man a healer at his touch. The first time we ever see anybody healed, actually, it's the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 4 where he sticks his hand in his bosom, he pulls it back out, it's leprous, and then God heals it. In Exodus 4, 7 and 8, God specifically calls that miracle of the healing of the leprosy a sign. That's important. Then we see with the apostles, the end of the gospel of Mark chapter 16, where it says, starting in verse 17, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, and we'll dive into this more later. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And here's the healing part. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they might recover if they have enough faith. That's not what it says. They shall recover because they have the sign, because they're the apostles, because it's the first century. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. That's what he did. This is clearly a temporary gift limited to the first century. I wish it wasn't, amen? I, I mean, I really wish it was available now. Think about it. Even the charismatics wish it was really available now. Think about it. I mean, look, why waste your time lying to people with, you know, all the stuff they heal? They're always, have you ever noticed they're always internal things? It hurts. Oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. Like, come on, man, stop it. Yeah, go, go, go. Go backstage and we'll give you your 20 bucks. You know, whatever. I've, I've, been, I've been to them. I've, I've been in Albania when, when those charlatans showed up and rented stadiums. And, and I, I went. I, I went to the stadium. I wanted to see. And uh, there was, I mean, it's a whole stadium, a football soccer stadium. And it was maybe 100 people. Like, it was empty. Um, people... Albanian people went there in wheelchairs, they, and they left in wheelchairs. And we got healed as a bunch of baloney. And the Albanians were mad because they were promised that they'd be healed and they weren't healed and all that sort of thing. But then about two or three months later, I happened to get my hands on this nice four-color glossy brochure that that group published somewhere back in, oh yeah, someplace, you know, the bastion of truth like Tulsa, Oklahoma or something like that. And, and they, they distributed these magazines showing the, the miracles of healing in Tirana, Albania. And I was like, you stinking liars. Like, I was there. Okay, this kind of stuff happens all the time. But just think if those guys really had the gift. And, you know, we like to say, well, if that's the case, you wouldn't be in, in, on crusades on stadiums. You'd go to hospitals and you'd clean them out. You'd go to the cancer ward, you'd clean them out. And we like to say that, and that's true. But if these charlatans are just about getting your money... I think so. If they really had the gift, can you imagine how much money they'd make? I mean, just think about the cash that would roll in. I mean, what would you pay a guy to come heal your wife or your child or your mother who's dying? I mean, 
COVID schmovid. How much fun could we be having if we had an apostolic gift of healing and the Antichrist one world socialism is trying to take over and getting everybody afraid of COVID and we're just like, not us, boom, healed, boom, healed. Like it would be awesome. We know this gift ceased to operate because the apostle, Paul, who could heal people at one time, at the end of his life, traveled with Luke the physician, recommended that Timothy take medicine and left his buddy Trophimus sick at Miletum. Kind of a mean thing to do for a guy with the gift of healing, wouldn't you say? The gift of miracles, the ability to do supernatural acts and wonders. First time we see miracles performed by men, again, it was Moses in Egypt. They were signs to Pharaoh that the word of Moses was indeed the word of God. And similar to healing, I would say that God does miracles every day. Every time a sinner gets saved, it's a miracle. But the gift of miracles, well, that's temporary. Those were things that accompanied the apostles in the first century. They've never been normative throughout history. We'll look at that again in a second. Number six, prophecy, receiving God's word and declaring it to others. Now, this one is also going to have an asterisk by it. And again, it all, it all, I keep putting things off. We'll get to it at the end of this day's lesson. But generally speaking, if you want to generalize the terminology, the gift of prophecy might be considered to be called the gift of proclamation. Okay, you proclaim some truth. So in the early church, it was indeed new revelation. These are preachers. They would stand up. It wasn't a sign gift, but it was revelatory. It was hearing God's voice audibly, right? And then repeating it to men. So it just stands to reason that once we have the final authoritative word of God in written objective form, not subjective to your memory or thoughts of what you think you heard, right? It's a more sure word of prophecy. There's no more new revelation. So as a result, there's got to be a temporary application of the gift of prophecy, yet there is a possible exception, an application for the ongoing church today. Just that instead of hearing God's voice audibly, we hear God's voice through the pages of Scripture. And if you want to make that kind of an application, then I think it's perfectly fine to be able to do so. And I think it it bears that out when we see the exact same title of a gift prophecy appear in the list in Romans chapter 12. So if you're getting your revelation from the pages of the Scripture, then okay, that's fine. Um, but without question, in the New Testament, there are men who are called prophets, right? And they are the foundation of the church. That's what Ephesians 2.20 says. They're built up, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And with that in mind, you think about a foundation, right? The foundation of the building is what's laid first. It's the strength that holds everything up, but it's underground. And no, Once the foundation is laid, you don't keep laying foundation. You build upon the foundation. But the foundation is laid once, and then the foundation is done like apostles and prophets, okay? So that... That's pretty, that's pretty clear. But if you want to make a modern continuation application of just the preacher preaching, okay, that's fair. Number seven, discerning of spirits. I told you some of this stuff is it's a little weird. 
Discerning of spirits, the ability to evaluate a situation spiritually and discern what kind of spirit is behind it. So, you know, again, no shortage of opportunities for abuse, right? Um, this is often abused. It's often considered to be temporary. Maybe, maybe just because. I mean, if you're just not sure whether a gift is supposed to continue or not continue, and you're just not sure that the Bible has clear revelation on the topic, what you might want to do is just say, what do the charismatics think? And go with the other one. I mean, it's kind of like the ACLU. I mean, if you're just not sure what stand to take on an issue, just look up what the ACLU thinks and just go the other way, and probably you're going to be right. I mean, you know, blind squirrel. Eventually, they might get one or two right, but not likely. So, you know, but the charismatics use this banner of the discerning of spirits that they can sense who has a demon and they can exercise the demon. And I I do like listening to podcasts. There's actually a very interesting podcast, very popular out by Christianity Today talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if anybody listened to that or not, but it's pretty interesting. If you never listened to it, it talks about the ministry of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church up in the Seattle area and that sort of thing. And um, one of the things I didn't know about Mark Driscoll that I learned about his ministry through this podcast is that in the course of his exercising, you know, of course he's a, charis- he's a charismatic, but he's also a Calvinist. Shocking that they go together. Um, before you know it, he'll be a Catholic like um, Francis Chan. And, uh, that, you know, they're all kind of the same. But, but he used to carry out what they called in Mars Hill demon trials. And they would bring people in and they'd counsel them and they, would dis- and they would supposedly have the discerning of spirits to know whether you were full of demons or not. Um, it's risky for sure. Okay, so, but the question is, could this be active today, right? Kind of like faith. I mean, it does appear sort of in other places. So 1 John chapter 4 does tell us, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And I don't know about you, but it does seem apparent to me that there just are some brothers and sisters out there who seem to have a heightened ability to be able to just sense spiritual activity, and and this could be something particularly useful in spiritual warfare, but you have to be very careful because as it's written in 1 John 4, for example, it's not listed as a gift. It's not expressly termed a gift, but rather something we should all be doing. And so if it's something we should all be doing, it's a pretty hard application to say that then that's a gift. And people easily get carried away with this one and just see spirits and everything. And if you know people like that, you try to avoid them after church and get out and go to your car and drive home quickly. Don't like talking to those people. Tongues, our favorite. Tongues will be a subject for Wednesday. Uh, The supernatural ability to speak in, here's the ding-ding key, known language that you have never studied. Once again, as a foreign missionary, I wish it existed. What a blessing that would have been. 
And John was a missionary. That's why he's saying that. Listen, anytime you've had to suffer and study and bear down and learn foreign languages, it's hard. It's hard. It's super hard for Americans. I mean, I don't want to run out of time, but I got to tell you the story. Okay, so I hadn't been in Albania that long, and we're just having fellowship with some other missionaries that were from other parts of the world. And there was one family, the very hospitable couple, and the husband was from Scotland and the wife was from Holland and they typically spoke Dutch together. Of course, they spoke perfect English and they were learning and doing very well in Albanian and whatnot and, and that sort of thing. And, and there was different people around. I think there was somebody from Brazil there and it was, it was kind of cool. And uh, I don't know how this just evening fellowship, you know, coffee and cookies or whatever at their house and we're just relaxing. The subject came up, you know, what, what's the language of heaven? This just happened to be the conversation. A true story. What's the language of heaven, you know? And, and everybody was saying their language is the language of heaven. You know, it's English, it's Dutch, it's Portuguese. You know, somebody's going to be super spiritual and say it's Hebrew, you know, and do that sort of thing. And everybody's, you know, it's, it's fun, it's playful, but everybody's digging in. No, it's this. No, I'm telling you it's that. And then with amazing clarity, this brother named Alistair, the, the Scottish guy with the Dutch wife, because the Dutch... I mean, she's European, and Europeans kind of get frustrated with Americans. <laughs> Let me just say it that way. And uh, she's like, no, I'm sick of you Americans thinking everything's about you, and there's a reason for that. Anyway, Alistair says to his wife, Anka, I wish I could do the Scottish accent. Y'all, it's my favorite accent in the world. I can't do it. Anyway, he said, honey, honey, relax. On this one, the Americans are right. He said, the language of heaven has to be English because God knows the Americans can't learn a foreign language. <laughs> True story. So impactful, I tell that story to this day. Um, yeah, so the gift of tongues, look, there were known languages, Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, read down. The languages are listed of the peoples that were there, Jewish proselytes in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast, right? And so this idea of unknown tongues being defined, privately defined, by the way, interpreted as gibberish, or privately interpreted to be compared to what is listed in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 as the tongues of angels. We'll, we'll get to that. That's, that's not a legitimate gift anyway, because the only legitimate gift of tongues that ever existed were known languages. But a guy had a miraculous ability to be able to preach it so that people could hear it in their own language, as happened in Acts chapter 2. So the true gift of tongues was clearly a sign. It was clearly temporary. 1 Corinthians 14.22 says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. So even if, it, even if they did continue and you're already a believer, it's not for you. So stop it. The interpretation of tongues. Now, this is super interesting because this obviously goes together with tongues. So it would be the ability to interpret a language you never studied. So here's a couple of dudes out trying to preach the word somewhere and you come across this people group and somebody just pops up and just starts preaching in some language and the other guy pops up and starts interpreting it. Like, that would be really crazy, but that was the idea. It goes together with tongues, so... If and whenever tongues cease, certainly the interpretations thereof as a miraculous gift cease as well. 
But the cool thing about interpretation with the tongues is, is that interpretation of tongues makes an unknown tongue known. Because what's an unknown tongue? It's, it means that it's a tongue, it's a language. You just don't know it. So if I bust out preaching the rest of this message in Albania and it's a legitimate language, you just don't know it, right? So 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the superiority of prophecy over tongues, but the truth of the matter is tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy because with the interpretation, you get the prophecy, right? That's, that's the message in chapter 14. So to complete this list, we need to compare three other lists, and that's starting in verse 28, then going to Romans and Ephesians. We'll go a little quicker. So from verse 28 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it, it lists again, and it, and it talks about an apostle. So we've kind of talked about that already, an official position of leadership accompanied by miraculous signs. You know that's true because 2 Corinthians 12 tells you that. Verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. They were limited to the apostles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Who are them? Who are they? The them in that sentence. It's the apostles. God also bearing them witness with both signs and wonders and diverse miracles. Notice, oh, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That means that there are unique gifts of the Holy Ghost that are assigned to the apostles that aren't assigned to anybody else. So that's who the apostle is. The prophet, again, an official position of leadership in the establishment of the early church. We saw that already. We looked at the Ephesians 2 reference. Then it talks about a teacher or teaching. And that's the supernatural ability to comprehend, order, and present biblical truth. Helps supernatural ability to support and help others in the work of God and governments. Supernatural ability to give order to chaos. And these are fairly straightforward and fairly clear. We're building a complete list. We're going to do some organization in just a second. So then we jump to the list in Romans chapter 12. We want to be comprehensive in every reference that's given. Romans 12, starting in verse 4. We read verse 3 earlier. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Context. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, or he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So here we have seven more listed in Romans chapter 12, and only three of them are new to the list. They haven't been mentioned yet. So prophecy was already covered. Uh, once again, since it's mentioned in the Romans list, there's a good argument to be made that prophecy has an element that was temporary as well as an element that continues. You could say the supernatural ability to proclaim God's word authoritatively. Um, some men are just gifted proclaimers of God's word. They're, it's a verbal spoken gift and not everybody has it. Uh, ministry, I would say, is the same as helps. It's the idea of the ability to minister, to serve, to help and support others in the work of the ministry. Teaching has already been covered, organizing truth and communicating that way. Exhortation would be new. Supernatural ability to encourage others to persevere. Barnabas, right? The son of consolation, the encouragement, the encourager, always wanting to come alongside 
and encourage you. Thank God for those people, right? Giving supernatural ability to sacrifice to supply others' needs. Ruling, I believe, is the same as governments. Your governments rule, they give order. And then mercy, supernatural ability to show compassion to those that are hurting, the the gift that I particularly enjoy exercising. Don't understand that. The last list is in Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. You gotta have sense of humor. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Then the next two verses are in parentheses. Come to the end of the parentheses and the sentence continues or the thought continues in verse 11. He gave gifts unto men in verse number 8, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying the body of Christ. So here we have four more. And in this case, they are gifted men. They are given to the church body. And two of them are new to the list. They've not yet been mentioned before. Apostles and prophets have been mentioned before. But evangelists have not been mentioned before. The supernatural ability to identify and pursue opportunities, preach the gospel to the lost. And a pastor-teacher, which I think we would all agree is combined as one according to the grammatical structure. The supernatural ability to lead, feed, protect, and nurture the flock of God. So if you add them all up and, and just extract the distinct, unique gifts... There's 19 total. There's 19 total distinct spiritual gifts available. And so now that we have them defined, let's take a few minutes and see if we can make sense of how they function and how they operate. I've I've given enough thought to that already. Number three in your notes, the dividing of the gifts, the dividing of the gifts. At this point, I want to organize the list into a couple of categories. So I've been saying that some continue and some ceased. And the details of when and why and how they ceased, we'll get to tomorrow morning when we get to chapter number 13, okay? We'll get to that and we'll, we'll dive in with some, with some detail and I hope, that, hope that'll be interesting for you. But for now, suffice it to say that anything that is expressly defined in the Scriptures as a sign, think about that word, as a sign. Tongues are for a sign. The healing is a sign right? These miracles are signs. It has no more value once you arrive at the thing that the sign is pointing to. So signs point to things, and when you arrive at the thing the sign is pointing to, you don't need a sign anymore, I'm here. So we only have three recorded times in all of biblical history where there are an overabundance of miracles that occurred. The time of Moses and Joshua, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. And that's significant because in each case there was a specific reason. And there are three very special men, if we look at the key men in each of those situations. Moses, who very often throughout the Scripture is written synonymously, his name is used synonymously with the law. And Elijah, the, the, the key character representation for the prophets, the, prof, the, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses that are going to come back in Revelation. 
These two guys stand at, at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ on, on Matthew 17, the one that Peter saw with the audible voice of God coming down. Moses and Elijah, right? These two guys, the law and the prophets is only fitting that they appear on the Mount of Transfiguration representing the very word of God, the law and the prophets. That they appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with a glorified Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Why would they not go together? Of course they go together. But now that the written word of God is complete, and there's no more gift of miracles, they're not normative. They're not abundant in life anymore. And, they, and by the way, they haven't been abundant in any other period of life throughout history. So you never read of men performing abundant, open miracles in the times of Adam or Abraham or Jacob or Joseph or Samuel or Samson or King David or Solomon or Hezekiah or any of them. You don't read about any of that. Why? Oh, I suppose it's they just didn't have enough faith. Really? But the truth is, some of these gifts, they're, they're not that clear. Those that are signs are pretty clear, but some of them aren't that clear as to what they really are and really do. And so I've tried to be very careful about how I present that stuff. So I don't know why, but for whatever reason, the Lord has just chosen to, to say very little about them. And I have to ask myself, should we say a lot about something that the Lord says little about? I mean, I, I'm not comfortable doing that as much as it appears that I'm comfortable saying a lot. But I, you think I shouldn't. But I have a couple of options of the way that some Bible teachers break it down. And the first option is in your notes. It's based on two categories. And the two categories are temporary signs or permanent edifying. And basically what you have is the list in the temporary signs are all the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 with the addition of the first two also. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12, but also in Ephesians 4, apostle and prophet. And the permanent edifying ones, they would say, are exclusively the gifts that are listed in Romans chapter 12. But then you'd have to add the last two from Ephesians chapter 4, which would be the evangelist and the pastor teacher. And the idea is, is that since Romans is the doctrinal standard for the New Testament church, only the gifts in Romans 12 are clearly available to the church throughout the ages. Two of the New Testament offices, evangelist, which, by the way, again, um, you know, in our circle of churches and our history where we come from, a more fundamental Baptist history where there's guys who make a living calling themselves traveling evangelists. Not against that, praise the Lord. A guy wants to do whatever he does. If the structure is right, he's sent out from a local church, okay. But I don't necessarily think that's the gift of the evangelist per se, although you could argue that maybe you think it is. But there's a lot of people who argue, and I think they make a fair argument, that the gifting of an evangelist is, although we use the word apostle as a sent one and a general understanding, and I've taught this and I teach it when I teach missions about an apostle in the general sense is a missionary. Well, in a sense, an evangelist could be considered the office of a missionary as well. Because isn't that basically what a missionary is supposed to do? You go into new places and hopefully with a supernatural ability God gives you to identify and share the gospel with people who have never heard it 
and build new works, build new churches where they didn't previously exist. So these two New Testament offices, evangelist and pastor teacher, certainly continue today. I don't think there's any question about that. They're not miraculous in nature. And so since Romans is kind of the doctrinal standard, if it's in Romans, you're on solid ground, right? Yet 1 Corinthians, although written by Paul, it's written to a church that's filled with problems. I mean, the whole book is nothing but correcting problems that the church had and stuff they did wrong. And certainly those problems extend to their abuse of gifts. And so you combine that fact that it's a church nothing, with nothing but problems and abuses and selfish behavior and since we don't actually have really clear cross-reference definitions for all of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, it sometimes is just cleaner to just consider them all temporary and just put them in that category. With the exception of those that might overlap with Romans. So if you've got one that overlaps with Romans, then, then that's okay. Default to Romans. So when you look at it that way, this, this actually, by the way, is a very commonly held understanding and a teaching and a categorization of the gifts is often taught this way. If you teach it this way, you've got a lot of friends. A lot of people do. There are other people, um, like Peter Ruckman, I, I like reading Peter Ruckman, he, he will say that anything that is not explicitly called a sign in the Bible like tongues are for a sign and healings are a sign and that sort of thing. But it's not explicitly called a sign in the Scriptures, like he would teach, then it's a continuing gift. And, and when he writes about the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom, for example, he just emphasizes the importance of knowledge and wisdom in the continuing church. But I would differ with that because I would say, yeah, but he didn't say he gave us knowledge and wisdom by the Spirit. He said he gave us the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. I already described that. So, listen, I, I get it, and, and Dr. Ruckman would have understood certainly that the way that it's abused by the charismatics, everybody jumps up, hey, brother, I have a word of knowledge, and then they just pretend to make up new stuff. I mean, obviously, he rejected that, but the point being is that he had a different categorization. He had a different way of looking at some of that stuff. He was a smart guy. Uh, I don't typically agree with that. I, I just think that, any, like I said, it's like the ACLU, if the charismatics are doubling down on it, I'm just going to double down against it. I just, I just think that's safe. But there's another option, and that's based on four categories. And this is the way I teach it. So take it for what it's worth. I make four categories, and I do it by including two categories from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And for those of you that knew that that was there and were waiting until I would get to it, here it is. As every man hath received the gift. Okay, so we're in a contextual, solid foundation here. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have temporary and permanent like the previous list, but then I'll break up the temporary and permanent into two subcategories of speaking and serving. And I would think that the charismatic brothers ought to appreciate this approach because this is really the only time in my life that, that I would espouse a four-square approach. I think, that, I think this is it. When you're looking at four-square, I think this is the way it should go. So in the temporary side, I'm almost done. 
The, the breakdown is, do I have this as blanks, revelatory and confirming? Is that chart up there, Andy? There's no chart? It's not even there? Oh, it's just in your notes. All right, well, my bad, sorry. Okay, so do you have blanks in your notes above the little topics? Okay, so temporary speaking, top left corner, revelatory. All of these things should be things that give new revelation. That's why they're temporary. So an apostle gives new revelation. A prophet gets new revelation. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and the interpretation of tongues gives new revelation. Okay? Those are speaking gifts. And so the serving gifts, all those, we'll put tongues on that side because it, it is speaking. But anyways, healing miracles and tongues. Because they are clearly signs given, like in Mark 16, confirming top right-hand side. So temporary serving, the line is confirming. Again, revelatory and then confirming. Healing, miracles, and tongues confirm that God's doing something that man obviously can't do. You go down to the bottom row, permanent left side, speaking. So we're on the bottom left-hand side now. And the, oh, let me check you out. It was in there. You found something. Good for you. Instructional. So all of these gifts, again, are of a speaking nature, and they continue today. So you have evangelists, you have pastors and teachers, you have the continuing nature of prophecy where we get the word of God from the written scriptures, not from some audible nightmare or whatever we had. And then teaching, of course, and exhortation. These are all methods which God uses your tongue to speak words of edification and encouragement, right? Whereas the last one is edifying. And, and so you'll see that I now add faith and discerning of spirits as a continuing gift. And you may or may not agree. Ruling, governments, helps, ministry, mercy, and giving. Now, um, why do I do that? Well, I don't know. I studied, and that's what I do. Um, let me give you a couple of words of explanation, and then I'll be done. we we'll take a break. Let's talk about faith for just a second. To me, anyway, and my experience in just observing life and ministry and what I have already described about faith and the, you know, the little bit of biblical revelation in the context of spiritual gifts, it seems to me that it's something that continues. Um, God certainly does give more faith to some people, as we saw in, Revel in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Um, the only other reference where faith is associated with a spiritual gift is that reference I mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. I talked about the tongues of angels, but it also mentions having the faith to move mountains, okay? And since it's in that context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you, you have to almost think, well, maybe that's faith that is a gift, the faith to move mountains. I mean, Jesus talked about that, faith the grain of a mustard seed, right? Say unto this mountain, cast it into the sea, and all that sort of thing. It's kind, we'll talk more about that tomorrow. And that, in that sense, if that's true, in that sense, faith would seem to be something that was more along the miraculous then. And if that were true, I tend to think it's not, but if it were true, then, then we would almost have to put it in the temporary category because it would be miraculous in nature and we don't need that anymore. But faith is referenced, you can't deny, throughout the Gospels, right, during Jesus' earthly ministry as the catalyst for miraculous healing. I know not every time, but I know a lot of times when they believed, Christ would heal them, right? The Charismatics take that and run with it. 
So you have places like Matthew 8.10, Matthew 9.2, Matthew 9.22, Matthew 9.29, Matthew 15.28. Notice they're all in Matthew. But I would point out to you, Bible students, that the Gospels are before the new birth. Therefore, in my opinion, they cannot be a good contextual reference for spiritual gifts. That, that can't be a good contextual reference for a spiritual gift argument. So I, I think some people just have the supernatural ability to trust God in times that are tough. And when I'm panicky, I like being around those brothers. I, I think it's a gift that continues. I have no reason to c- conclusively determine it's not. Let me say it that way. Prophecy, I would put in both lists again. Included both in Romans and 1 Corinthians, certainly has an element that applies to both first century exclusively and the continuation. It just depends on where you're getting the revelation from, so we've covered that already. And discerning of spirits could be similarly applied with the gift of prophecy, in my humble opinion. Why? Because certainly there can be a first century application, and I think there's an argument to be made that it can be a continuing modern application as well. Again, from my experience, there's, there's just some brothers and sisters out there that seem to have a supernatural ability to be able to discern, and maybe we just refer to it as discernment in general, but everything's spiritual at the end of the day. They have a greater ability to discern spirits than other people do. Some people just forge ahead headlong into stuff, and they can't see the dangers that are out there. And other people are like, hey, 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 wait a minute. Don't you realize all this stuff that's in play? Don't you realize the trap you're going to get into? Don't you realize the, you know, this is where my power of negative thinking comes in maybe. I don't know. But it does seem that some people just have the ability to do that. So, so in my view, at least, discernment could be associated with spiritual vision. You can discern, you can see things that not everybody seems to be able to see. And since in 1 Samuel 9, in the Old Testament anyway, the prophet was also called a seer, there might be some connection to prophecy with the discerning of spirits. And if there's a dual application of prophecy, maybe there's a dual application of the discerning of spirits as well. I think that's a fair consideration. At the end of the day, let me just conclude with this. Since God has clearly given us various administrations and operations for all of his gifts working in us, if you choose in your churches to define and teach and administer the lists of of gifts differently, God bless you, really. But I would say this, just as long as you agree that clearly some have ceased, I think that's the bottom line. Those that are defined as miraculous in nature are a sign to Israel. After that, it, I don't know that it matters that much how you choose to views, view the others. And I, my counsel to you would be just get out there and serve and trust God to give you what you need when you need it. And if you do it sincerely... And if you do it with a spirit of charity, which is chapter 13, and humility, my guess is God won't be too upset with you. You'll probably be just fine. That's all I got. Let's pray, and uh, we'll take a...
15-minute break, and you can come back in here for good teaching. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for the truth of your word, and thank you for this chapter and the laying out of what you laid out. And even in the things that seem a bit dark to us, we're just thankful. We're thankful that you've given us the perfect, full, and complete revelation of your word. And I pray that you help us to understand how to function, how to exercise what you've given us, and how to trust you for more, and how to venture forward believing you and believing that you'll equip us as necessary and that together we work as a body. And, and I don't have everything, and nor should I. That's why I need these brothers. I need these sisters. We need to work together. So I pray that we would always be humble, and I pray that we would always be charitable, and I pray that you would continue to always teach us because that's your role, and we surrender to that in Jesus' name. Amen.